Hello, and welcome to the Aberdeen Immunology Group podcast. In this episode, we were delighted to be joined by Dr. Lewis Penny, a research fellow at the University of Aberdeen and a senior scientist at TowerX Therapeutics. Lewis's research involves the discovery and development of therapeutics and diagnostic tools using immunotherapeutic applications for Alzheimer's disease. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. So thank you for uh, being on the podcast today, Lewis. It's uh, really great to have you on. If you want to start by telling us a little bit about your background and that kind of how you got into science and into the field that you're in just now. Sure. So it's a brief introduction. I'm a research fellow here at the University of Aberdeen. And primarily my research looks at using and finding new antibodies to target a protein called tau and hopefully we can use them to diagnose and treat alzheimer's disease and um, i also have a role um we're funded by a commercial commercial partner called TowerX therapeutics so i'm a senior scientist there as well and i help them with their clinical trials and um, they have a phase three clinical trial ongoing uh, investigating a small molecule uh, targeting alzheimer's disease and i help them with their biomarker strategies measuring different things in blood uh, to see if the small molecule is helping or not. So can I ask you, um, how did you get into science? So did you always want to be a scientist? Was it kind of like a serendipity moment during your undergrad studies? Um, how did you how did you get into science and how did you get up here in Aberdeen? So I'm <laughs> from Aberdeen, so that's, that's uh, a starting point. So I, I escaped for a few years. I'm sure I'll tell you that in a few minutes, but how did I actually come into science? Um, I've always enjoyed, so I mean at school, you know, I enjoyed my biology and chemistry. If I'm to be blunt, I never thought, you know, throughout as a kid and even, um, you know, at high school, school level, I never really thought I'm going to be, you know, the Einstein sort of scientist. I like the idea of helping people. I enjoyed biology and chemistry. I did my undergraduate here at University of Aberdeen. That was in biomedical science, but I would say I really fell in love with science doing my master's degree here, and that was in drug discovery and development. And that was more the sort of, and it's related to where I am now, is that using science to help people, um, it's really got broad applications. I like that called translational science from, you know, I'm not that attracted to studying, you know, pathways in the brain. But I like it when we go, oh, look, this change is in Alzheimer's. What can we do about that in the real world? Um, so that, that's what turns me on scientifically. Um, I went then, I worked in industry for two, three years. I was a study director uh, in toxicology for a company called Charles River Laboratories. And I helped their, what you call a contract research organization. So we had all these large pharmaceutical companies uh, running studies for them to help them and get into clinical trials and it was really again that translational it's like you're 100 percent direct research is going into to helping people and helping get these drugs to market i was there a few years and then i did my phd back at university of aberdeen um and it's exactly as the project i said which i'm just continuing now as a research fellow it's looking at again that direct application of therapeutics and diagnostics um, using antibodies against this tau protein. So it's um, immunotherapy is kind of your main field. So do you want to maybe delve a little bit further into what you're working on? I'm not sure if 
you can, but um, maybe a little bit of explanation as to how the antibodies can target this protein. And what is this protein? Like? Yeah. What is tau? Uh, that's a great idea. So I, you're right, there is some restrictions on what I can and can't say, so it's a commercially sensitive project, but sure I can talk about tau and I can talk about loosely what we're up to in the laboratory. Uh, so let's start with tau. Tau is a very important protein in the fact that it stabilizes the microtubules in your brain. In simplistic terms, um, it's structure, it gives structure to your neurons and it also is involved in transport of key molecules, if you like, um, to and fro down the neuron. So if something begins to go wrong with tau, um, you know, you have that lack of things getting to where they need to be. But in Alzheimer's disease, um, not only does it have that loss of physiologic process, it aggregates um, and it becomes toxic and it causes quite a really nasty environment for the neurons and they die. They leave this skeleton, if you like, called ghost tangles. They really aggregate and if you like, choke up the cells. And this process goes on for about 20, 30 years before the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease that we know, you know, your classic memory loss and then, you know, right down to the loss of personality in the human that we know. It's a, a horrible debilitating disease, but the science and the, the mechanisms behind Alzheimer's disease happen decades before the symptoms. So the idea being, if you stop this spread of tau um, going from neuron to neuron, it it, this tau pathology, it progresses in a spatiotemporal manner. So it starts in, you know, that exact regions that are important for memory, um, the entorhinal cortex and the hippocampus, and it spreads out throughout the brain. So we can prevent that spread with our antibodies. The idea is that we can prevent uh, Alzheimer's disease. So that's why we're targeting tau. You said tau is in a normal, healthy functioning brain is important for the structure of the neuron and its function. Um, and you said in Alzheimer's disease, its function goes wrong and it aggregates to a point that it, it's harmful to the neuron. What I found interesting is that you said that, you know, when that happens in one neuron, that can kind of spread. It's almost like a, an infection. Is, I mean, is that an appropriate way to classify it? Or And on side note, is there a, does, does anyone know yet um, possible, you know, hypothesis as to why that starts to happen in the first place. So two questions. Is it like an infection? And uh, is there a reason why that happens? There's a, if anyone knows yet. So yeah, that's an exact, it's a great way to summarise it. It is almost like an infection. It's a prion-like manner. It spreads from neuron to neuron. That neuron becomes not infected, but affected by the pathology. And that you know, it's to the detriment of that neuron and it goes down that neuronal network. So yes, it is, it is similar to an infection, I would say. Uh, the second question was, what causes, uh, you know, this difference in normal brains, then we have Alzheimer's brains. I would say we're beginning to learn a lot more about what's going wrong in these processes. Um, so with tau itself, it becomes truncated. It's a bit like a paperclip. So if you take off the ends, um, these can stack up and aggregate. Um, so the truncation profile is a little bit different um, in Alzheimer's disease. But there are, you know, there are other processes and proteins. You may have heard of the amyloid hypothesis in Alzheimer's disease. And it is considered the spark in Alzheimer's disease. And tau pathology is considered the fire. 
So with this amyloid pathology, it's considered a key process that drives uh, tau. And amyloid, like tau, aggregates and causes this process. Now, what causes amyloid? We're not sure. <laughs> um, you know, people are talking about, you know, it aggregates in a similar way to tau and causes this effect. But, you know, we're not quite sure what causes that. People are, there are hypotheses, you know, um, that immune cell dysfunction and maybe a important mediator of that. But there are people linking stuff like gum disease, um, you know, infection in prior life is driving these processes. It's we're learning a lot probably in the last few decades of Alzheimer's disease, but the, your amyloid and tau pathology are the hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease. Your work, as you mentioned, um trying to use antibodies to target tau, right? And to, and as you said, to kind of prevent its spread. Um, how are you work, how does that work? Are you trying to get the immune system to kind of clear tau away? Or how, do you know, that, are you allowed to disclose kind of the mechanism behind your antibody therapy? It's a good question. So we're not the only people doing this. Uh, tau is, you know, it's fascinatingly complex in health and disease. Other people are targeting different parts of the protein to us, and that has advantages and disadvantages. We we mentioned, you know, it's truncated and chopped up. So if a specific antibody is targeting, you know, a part that's chopped off and irrelevant, then, you know, that doesn't make it an attractive therapy. So we, we rank our, our therapies in different ways on how they can prevent, well, the field, I should say, a lot of people they they rank their antibodies on the ability to prevent this aggregation uh, so like biochemical assays you know tau stacking on top of each other can the antibody prevent that from happening and also extracellular extracellularly um they they look to prevent pathologic tau going into cells so preventing that prion like process and so we, we look at different parts of the protein and which are most attractive to prevent these processes and that's what a lot of people in this field are doing. Is it quite challenging trying to deliver a, an like any therapeutic I suppose to the brain because you know they, they call it an immune privileged zone or it, I guess it's quite a delicate balance between trying to prevent the disease and then causing you know an immune related adverse effect is that I mean yeah. That's so topical at the moment um, So so let's start with you know you have the blood brain barrier so not 0.1 percent, not 0.2 percent, maybe of what you dose. Um, so if your Alzheimer's therapies, tau or amyloid, it tends to be like an infusion. So in the periphery through a vein and a very small amount of that gets in the brain. Um, you know, one or two molecules per thousand are active doing like something in the brain. So we need to be mindful of that, first of all. Secondly, Alzheimer's is causes or it's certainly related to neuroinflammation. So if you have antibodies in the brain, you know, taking up this tau, engaging with immune cells, and that's almost promoting this process, but you also want to clear that too. So it's it's certainly a delicate balance. And that's a great way of putting it. Um, it's really topical at the moment because for the first time ever, as of I think last year, we now have two therapies against amyloid that are approved for Alzheimer's disease. These are disease modifying drugs. Um, so it's historic, you know, time right now for Alzheimer's disease, but they come with that massive caveat that they engage the immune system. 
the antibodies bind amyloid. People who maybe have a predisposition, like a genetic predisposition to Alzheimer's, will be taking drugs to prevent it. Yeah, that would be a fantastic sort of uh, endpoint. So in terms of tau mutations um, that are non-related to Alzheimer's disease, there are to other tauopathies and dementias. But certainly amyloid, there is that genetic predisposition. So you could identify people that might be likely to get Alzheimer's um, and you could treat them. But that we're a long way off from that. But that sounds great. Um, so at the moment, you know, we have these amyloid antibody or immunotherapies approved. Um, one of them can slow down clinical decline. I think it's by 28 percent, um, which is it's modest, but it's a, it's good. Yeah. Um, and the sort of tagline that the field's going with is what about the other 72 percent? So that's probably going to be combination therapies and it's going to be a treatment over relatively long times, I think. Um, certainly the clinical trials, they go for two, three, four, five years. Um, we're only just beginning to know. So for the amyloid ones, they're removing 90 percent of the plaques, let's say. So they're thinking, you know, do we have to continue dosing? We don't know. Um, hopefully not. Um, or it might be more sporadic, like once a year. But the other way to do it is, yes, we and many others use antibodies uh, specific to that protein. But you can, in the same way that we have COVID, COVID vaccinations, people are looking at Alzheimer's disease vaccinations. So getting the immune system of, you know, the patient themselves to clear that pathologic protein. Um, it comes with a lot of caveats, you know, the immune system's dysfunctional in older people, but the idea of this one-off or, you know, with maybe a few boosters giving a decade worth of, you know, immune response against it's really attractive. Okay, and I think we might have maybe covered this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What are you hoping to achieve? Like, what what is your goal? I think you maybe said that you wanted to help people, but um if you want to maybe expand on that a little bit if you can yeah definitely um so definitely it's that translational side of science that appeals to me and it's the idea of using it uh for some sort of benefit or some sort of product or use and um, it's great that there's so many scientists that are purely interested in you know studying a process or a in organ or some process and improving our knowledge of that is important and it's important for drug discovery and translational science too but i really love that aspect of taking something and trying to do something about it um, i do as well enjoy my teaching um, i'm taking that on a bit as well so that is helping people i guess in a different way as well um, teaching and i've you know uh, in a couple of weeks i'm giving a, a lecture to a, a high school or an academy so some kids uh, teaching them about dementia. So I'm, I'm quite enjoying that at the moment as well. Um, but I think that's what's attractive to me at the moment is using science to for some sort of translational purpose. And do you find that your kind of academic research fellow work um, balances well and complements the industry side quite well? And I mean, how do you juggle those two responsibilities? Because it sounds like quite a lot. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, <laughs> I'm quite lucky in the fact that my academic project is sponsored by the same people um, in the company. So it's it would be difficult for me to say um, on a larger picture whether that, uh, you know, that relationship is detrimental or 
you know synergistic or you know but yeah I, I i have to balance the projects for sure i allocate x amount of time to each project i have and yeah that that's it um, you have to be quite disciplined in your project management for sure it's it's also quite positive to see because you know sometimes um people coming to the end of their phd or whatever they're doing they either think they have to go kind of one route or the other and it seems like you've got your your feet in both Ponds, I guess. Or yeah, um, that's absolutely true. Um, and I, I'm not, you know, I can put my hands up and say conclusively, I don't know where I want to be or what I want to do in the next five, ten years. So I'm aware it's advantageous. I have that academic hat on. I have that teaching hat on. I have that industry and drug discovery uh, diagnostics as well um, hat on as well. So I'm trying to stay broad, but yeah, you do have to specialise in science at some point as well. Oh, it's quite nice though. We spoke to Julia about this as well um, when she was on last year, how compared to traditionally industry and academia were very separate. So it's it's nice to see these cross, um, cross academia and industry projects and uh, roles like yourself that work between the two um it's nice to see that because i think she as well with the ktp yeah she was on the ktp with the lasmogen and the university of Aberdeen. Yeah. yeah the ktp scheme is great and yeah it's great um for small medium enterprises um to to collaborate with universities it's great um and you know it's great for people like me who sat in the middle as well we're getting the best of both worlds for sure so Lewis, you also mentioned in your when we were doing when we were uh, in contact before this um, podcast that you also work with immunodiagnostics in addition to the immunotherapeutics. So in addition to trying to almost stop the progression of tau and help to treat Alzheimer's uh, disease using antibodies, um, you also mentioned the immunodiagnostics. Can you explain a little bit what you mean what you mean by that and what you're trying to do to um, tackle that? Okay, sure. So let me just explain it. This relates back to how I was explaining Alzheimer's disease and the pathology happens or happening uh, decades before symptoms. And so clinical trials and therapies to date, they've really been targeting what it might not be clinical end stage disease. You know, people are still getting worse, but, you know, these symptoms are onset after 20 years of pathology and that's the people we're treating. So the therapeutic window, if you like, might have closed. So that's really important. And one of the successes they think of the, the amyloid therapies we were discussing is they're targeting patients earlier and therefore there might this might be advantageous. So we actually have within the field um, amyloid and tau assays. They can diagnose people with Alzheimer's disease based on you know, these changes in the brain. 10, 15, 20 years, they can see these notable changes. This is in blood tests. Um, if you spoke about this five years ago, 10 years ago, maybe, you know, people would have thought, you know, that, that's witchcraft. That's not real. You can't do that. But we have ultra sensitive technologies now. Um, so we can detect things that we could only really detect in the brain and cerebral spinal fluid, which is like, you know, the fluid that uh, the brain bathes in really. So we have these pathologic processes in the brain, we can detect them in the CSF and we can now detect them in the blood. So we can detect these changes in tau by antibodies that we mentioned. Um, 
the field can do this 15, 20 years before uh, symptoms, which is really cool. Uh, it's really ahead of, you know, the likes of the NHS and healthcare is at at the moment. Um, but it offers us of uh, identifying the AD continuum, Alzheimer's disease continuum, before symptoms, and it can help us design therapies. Hopefully, this will be coming into clinical practice soon. One of the amyloid blood tests is now approved in the US. So for, you know, $800, I think the latest price was, which is still a little bit pricey, you can, a clinician, you know, can take your blood and the blood test can support an Alzheimer's disease diagnosis. They can't at the moment just take your blood and say you have Alzheimer's disease. There's all sorts of implications for that um, because we, until very recently, we haven't got treatment for it. So you can't tell people 20 years before symptoms, you have this disease and we can't do anything about it. So there's almost an ethical part of that as well. But at the moment, the science on diagnostics for Alzheimer's disease is well ahead of where we are in the healthcare setting. So it's going to be really interesting to see where we go. But specific to our project, yeah, we're looking at using these tau antibodies in the way that other people have to look at different fragments and how that changes in the brain, blood and the cerebral spinal fluid that I mentioned. That's pretty powerful if you can, because I think that seems to be a challenge, whether you're talking about cancer or something else. It's that kind of early early diagnosis to because early diagnosis tends to have a better outcome if you can treat people. Um, patients sooner. But I think that was a, an interesting point that you brought up. You know, you you can possibly diagnose or detect these antibodies or something in someone's blood 20 years before they get the kind of maybe more traditional symptoms associated with Alzheimer's disease. But how do you go about kind of saying, yeah, you have this, but we have no way to treat you. We have no other way. I mean, do you use these as kind of a stepping stone to further diagnose it? So we have people that have been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, we have, um, you know, blood from them. We have that in biobanks. We have that as really useful tools um, to help us distinguish between healthy controls and Alzheimer's disease specific changes. We have, we mentioned before genetics, we have people that are at risk of getting Alzheimer's disease. So there's been trials that have followed these people for five, 10 years and you know, that's really how you get to understand the processes before the symptoms um, is looking at people that are at risk and then following them for five, 10 years and then seeing how that correlates with if they get Alzheimer's disease or not. That makes a lot of sense. And it's just it's really fascinating, actually. And it's interesting that you're working in both areas, both the treatment and the kind of the diagnostic part of it. I think they complement each other quite nicely. Yeah. Yeah, they do come hand in hand, I should say. It's not that long ago. Um, so we talked about these anti-amyloid therapies and antibodies. Um, in the clinical trials, there was over 30% of people in the clinical trials that didn't have amyloid pathology um, because the diagnostics wasn't as good. So the diagnostics need to be good for the therapies and the therapies need to be good for the diagnostics. Because, um, you know, we talked about potentially being able to diagnose people 10, 15, 20 years before symptoms, but if you don't have an appropriate treatment, that's a problem. So if you had any advice for a budding scientist, what would it be? Oh, <laughs> um, on a daily basis. So sometimes we're in the lab, you know, 
10, 12 hours a day. You know, sometimes science is hard work um, and you don't actually see the progress sometimes. So if you just take a step back, you know, whether you're still at school, whether you're still at university um, or whether you're still, you know, in the lab, if you just take a step back and think about how far you've come, um, it's always great. Uh, so that's some advice I would give. Uh, otherwise, it's just work hard, take the opportunities you can, uh, keep a positive mindset is good. And there are setbacks in science for sure. I've spent, I'm thinking of one set of experiments I spent a year on, um, didn't work. Other experiments, they work in a day. Um, and that's not to the detriment of, you know, or cause of you as a person. You know, you just sometimes have to realize, you know, this isn't working or it's not my fault. We tried um, and you spin the project, you you go in a different direction. So my advice would be to, you know, work hard, keep at it. But, um, you know, it's, it's not always successful, but you need to celebrate the successes as well. OK, well, thank you, Lewis. It was lovely having you on. Thank you very much for listening. And don't forget to check out our social media channels and other episodes. Mm-hmm.